Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I want to skip this entire episode and go straight to our last topic because that made me laugh so hard when I saw it. <laughs> if you guys haven't watched Curb Your Enthusiasm, you need to start watching it right now. Oh, I never really thought about the mega hat thing. It's I mean, brilliant. I just don't talk to people anyways, but, you know, that's a, that's a really good thing to kind of keep people away from you. Larry David is pretty funny. That, that was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Wait for that one, guys. That's going to be fun. Anyways, hi. Uh, welcome back. It's uh, Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined, as always, by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Howdy. Hey. Uh, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, want to see what we're uh, up to, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast itself, you can share through uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. We always appreciate the support. Um, and then our merch line. You can find on teespring.com. Uh, a direct link will be on all of our social channels, so definitely check that out. Right now we have a few T-shirts, a hoodie, uh, some mugs, a couple mm -hmm. different mugs. Yeah. Uh, and we'll be adding new stuff as time goes on, so definitely check it out. And it's really high-quality stuff, too. I enjoy it thoroughly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're living in a post-impeachment world now, guys. It's uh, it's very scary. Kind of exciting. Yes. Um. And uh, it really didn't slow down the news at all in any way, shape, or form, which I'm kind of upset about. But also, we need stuff to talk about every week. Um, more importantly, uh, Phil got thanked by a communist. Uh, we have the video of it. Um, I'll, I'll have to... I don't know if I can... I have to steal that I video it, so we can post I, it. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you stall for two seconds? Sure. Well, you want me to start talking about yeah, that? Yeah, start talking. Okay. So, should I go into the topic? Yeah, why not? Okay. All right. So, it's time for a special edition of Phil's Campaign Corner. This may be our last Phil camp sure. Campaign Corner for a while, for another yeah. four years. But as we all know, the New Jer New Hampshire primary, I was going to say New Jersey. Don't you I dare call us New Jersey. <laughs> Don't you dare. It just flows <laughs> off the tongue. So the New Hampshire primary took place on Tuesday, and our very own Phil Barker was on the front line catalog cataloging it all. Just over the last week, Phil met with a whole lot of these candidates, often introducing them to the audience. Speaking of which, Nick, I think we should play the tape of when Bernie Sanders thanked Professor Phil Barker. I think we can do that. Do we, we can do that great. I think we can do that. Hold on. Let's uh, hold on, make sure Let I got thank, the... Yep. Oh, here we go. Let me thank Professor Phil Barker. Let me thank Mohammed Zinni. And let me thank Tim Robbins. You all know... You better, you better thank Tim Robbins. <laughs> 
whatever this Phil guy. He sounds like kind of an ass. But Tim Robbins, I'm gonna, I'm gonna that's, tell you that's what. impressive. You were not only in the same room as Tim Robbins, but you were in the same sentence of Bernie yeah. Sanders. This we're a, a lot alike, me and Tim. <laughs> right. So all right. So unlike Iowa, New Hampshire has had their returns in on time and in an orderly fashion. Thank you for that, Phil. Uh, Bernie that. Sanders <laughs> emerged victorious. But hot in his tail was Mayor Pete. And a somewhat surprising development, Amy Klobuchar came in third. Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden did not have very good days coming she in. She was throwing distant. blinders at everyone behind no, she her. No, so. she was very nice about it. But that was. says something, that if you're nice and you lose, right? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So they came in fourth and fifth. Phil, why don't we start by having you share some of your experiences over the last week? Then we can dive into the results a bit. And we should also discuss the longtime Democratic strategist, James Carville, who is once again in the news for sounding the alarm bells over what he described as the Democrat, Democratic Party turning into an ideological cult, specifically singling out Bernie Sanders. So, Phil, let's tell the people uh, about your New Hampshire experience. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, we've talked about it on here a lot over the last, I mean, year and a half, it seems like. It's probably been really about a year that, that candidates mostly have been coming. Um, and, and, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's an amazing experience. Um, this last week, it turned from amazing to sort of surreal. I mean, it was so on campus in the week leading up to, uh, um, to the election, we had seven of the presidential candidates plus Elizabeth Warren, who was just right down the street from campus, not officially on campus. So basically every major candidate uh, except for Biden and then some minor ones throw in, you know, Tulsi Gabbard and, and whatnot were on campus. And so, you know, you get to see each of them making their last pitch. And and it was kind of fascinating to see after Iowa, how they sort of all changed their, you know, the message they were putting out there and the dynamic Um and it's not just the candidates. I mean, it's, you know, so Pete Buttigieg brought Michael J. Fox to campus and Tim Robbins comes with Bernie and they bring they're bringing bands and and you have all of the you know media figures. And, you know, it's it, before you have, uh, you know, cameras that show up uh, at some of these events, you know, the local news and whatnot. But this was, you know, suddenly in the last week, it's MSNBC and it's CNN. And I mean, MSNBC was on campus taking pictures of our students who were going to vote. Uh, Andrew Yang, they ran vans back and forth from campus to the polling place for students. Andrew Yang jumped in the van at one point and rode with students to the campaign. I mean, just it's it's just bizarre, right? It's, you know, just people everywhere. Bill Weld just wandering around on Main Street and Keene shaking people's hands like it's just a it feels it feels like a carnival. Um, And then, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just curious. Like you're it's it's really interesting. Um, I, I guess my question is. Um, from your perspective, how much of it is spectacle and how much of it is substance when it comes to kind of the overall just experience? Um, I, I mean, I guess it depends on what, what you mean by it. I mean, so a lot of it is spectacle. I mean, there's there is a whole industry of essentially election tourism, right? People right. who come to the state not even candidates or media they're not they're just here to to watch right they're just here mm-hmm. to see the the whole thing uh go down and so um you know there is spectacle to it in that but but not necessarily any more than than there is in any other week i mean everything sure. is very carefully planned right so the candidates are very clear at one point uh when amy klobuchar was when she was here I was sitting right next to the platform where she was, you know, about to give her talk. And the guy introducing her was, uh, he was, you know, doing the, a little bit of a longer introduction. And so she was trying to kill time and not look awkward. So she stood and talked to, um, 
her campaign, you know, her manager or whatever, who was right there. And they're, they're trying to look busy, but I can hear what they're talking about, right? They're talking about how I'm, I'm going to talk to you. So it looks like we're talking about, something. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, every bit of it is, is planned, right? I mean, it is very important, the, the looks in the, of it. Um, so, you know, there, it is spectacle, but for the people who show up, I mean, some of them are tourists, right? So Bernie, when he travels with a band, right? When he opens with a one hour jam band concert, there are people who came to see the band, right? So they're not there necessarily for him. Uh, but for the most part, the the voters, I you know, I, they're engaged, right? And they're coming off of of Iowa. You know, I, I felt like there were a lot of people who showed up to Pete Buttigieg this week because it was like, okay, so here's this guy who's supposedly a front runner. I want to hear what he has to say. You know, Amy Klobuchar, she's supposedly in this race now. Let's let's actually go and you know uh, see what see what this is all about. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's spectacle, but it, there's also like it's it's not just spectacle. Like people in New Hampshire take it really seriously. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that as we've been talking over this last week, uh, the number of candidates that you said who maybe aren't as good in the political side of it, who aren't as good on the, you know, when you see them on TV or in the debates, but who are really good in person. I think you, yeah. you said uh, Yang was really Yang, good. Yeah. And you said Klobuchar was pretty good in, in person as well, right? She is. I, Klobuchar is, uh, is um, better in person than on the debate stage. Um, not like dramatic. There's not like a huge difference, but she's, she's funny. She gets, she, she's, uh, I mean, she's very dry, right? But mm-hmm. she can deliver uh, lines that get a laugh that make her relatable. Um, which she needs because I, you know, I, I've, I've said before, I think I said when she came to class, you, you, I get the sense from her campaign that she's, you know, like she's, I, I think she, well, you know, there's stories about her, uh, being abusive to her staff or whatever. I don't know how much of that is true, but. Oh, the I, salad I, in a comb. I, that's gotta be true. <laughs> <laughs> but she seems to run a tight ship. Like they seem like they're, you know, but, but she's able to, you know, contrast that with a, with a, a sense of humor. And so I, I find her more likable in person than I do when I, when I'm on TV. The biggest example of it was Andrew Yang though, who, who in debates, especially early on, he, he got better as time went on. Um, but you know, he, I I don't know, he kind of got tied down to these couple of ideas, the universal basic income and whatnot. And then when you see him in person, he's funny, he's really charming. He, he has an ability to tell a story. He talks about more issues, this broader range. And that's, you know, that's the beauty of getting to spend an hour with a candidate as opposed to this insane debate structure in which somebody throws a question and they get 30 seconds before somebody else interrupts them. So, I mean, I think that's the, that's, what's nice. You know, we've, we've talked on here before about, you know, there, there's a good conversation about whether Iowa and New Hampshire should be the first to go because we are really white mm-hmm. um, and New Hampshire is really old. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I, I hope it stays New Hampshire just because I'm self-interested. I like the idea of getting to do this again. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea of someone doing it, that some some state where the where the, it is, it is, you know, small enough that uh, a candidate, you know, candidates can, you know, really travel around and do these more in-person conversations. Um, you really do. You see a different side of them. You hear more of them. You see how they respond to questions that they are not prepared for. There's one guy who showed up at Tulsi's event. Um, I was telling you about this bill that showed up at Tulsi's event who claimed to be a victim of Fast and Furious uh, and that um, he was a, a gun shop owner and that Eric Holder and Barack Obama took like three and a half million dollars worth of machine guns from him. 
and gave them I could be having I could have the details not exactly right. gave them to El Chapo <laughs> and I'm El sure Chapo he's a listener. killed yeah <laughs> but he came to he came to multiple events and he asked Tulsi Gabbard about this and he asked Amy Klobuchar and getting to see them like you know on their you know they have to respond they can't they, I mean, they don't have to, but, uh, um, you know, they're, they're not expecting a question like that. So you could see how quick they think, you know, how, how, uh, yeah, how good they are at handling dealing with people. And, and yeah, it's, it's really interesting. There's a, you know, it's a real test for candidates. I, I, after the debacle in Iowa and after all of the caucus system, I, I'm less inclined to say Iowa deserves to keep its spot, but there is something about a small state, you know, which New Hampshire fits where you couldn't do that in Illinois. You couldn't do it in California or New York. We're trying to push it to be Illinois. <laughs> right. But you couldn't, there's no way that a candidate could do multiple events where they got, where the whole state got a sense that they could meet these candidates. It's just size is not, not possible. Mm-hmm. And and that means that if you did a big state, it would all be the ads and the, you know mm-hmm. the corporate f- structuring of all of that. And New Hampshire can cut through some of that. So I, I do I am sympathetic, having you know heard your experience that there is some real value in putting those candidates out there. Have to go through that real test, and uh, you get certain candidates rising to the top. I mean, we saw Biden and Warren, who should be the front runners if it was just about money and name recognition suddenly dropped to four and five. You're, you're right. The, the counter to that, I'll, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate to my own state. I'll, you know, argue against my own state. The counter to that is that the whole race changed in the last week. I mean, it has, it has been, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and, you know, Pete and Amy Klobuchar were, were candidates, but they weren't like front runners. And then, so candidates have literally spent a year coming and courting New Hampshire voters. And in a week, in response to what happened in Iowa, you know, whatever, you know, 30% yeah. of the electorate changes their mind. So that goes against the idea that all of this time and and yeah. money and ground game is some, you know, actual deep seated, like we've, we've worked through and figured out who's, who's good and who's not, you know, people, you can, you can invest all of that time and money and people can still change their mind. Something like half of voters in New Hampshire made up their mind in the last three days. Right. Um, and so, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that goes against the idea that that this is a, you know, a, a long vetted process and that that New Hampshire voters, it doesn't mean they didn't take it seriously. Right. I mean, what the argument f- for it could be that, hey, I've listened to all these candidates and there's two or three that I like. And in the last week, it became clear that, you know, Elizabeth Warren is not doing well and Pete Buttigieg is. So that's who I'm going to vote for. So mm-hmm. if it plays out in that way, then then it's more sympathetic. But if it's just that they're as subject to the whims of media narratives and and the last you know five days of politics, then then that's you know, that's mm-hmm. not great. Mm-hmm. Should we kick around the results a little bit? Sure. Yeah. All right. So Bernie winning is not that big of a surprise, right? I mean, in some ways, Bernie should do well in New Hampshire. It's right in his backyard. Mm-hmm. If he hadn't won, that may have been the big story. Buttigieg continues his momentum. Klobuchar was, the, I think, arguably, the she was above expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then again, you see Warren and Biden coming in for a distant fourth and fifth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's awfully early, but that was a really curious result i mean i wouldn't have thought klobuchar would have jumped like that and i would have thought warren would have had better prospects there so here's my thought that i've had over the past couple days on it so i think elizabeth warren's initial strength which was being extremely detailed what she was talking about and you know having a a, a plan for everything a plan for everything but then she got tied down into uh, you know, mandatory Medicare for all and these talking points that went away from that initial kind of con- uh, conception that, you know, uh, her version of drain the swamp and getting rid of corruption in government and, you know, student loan forgiveness and 
a more reasonable approach to the way that that the government operates, that became this weird kind of borderline socialist kind of Bernie like thing that she had going, which Bernie can could get past, but she could. Right. Yeah. She's not supposed to be that yeah. candidate. Um, and, and I think there's there's a real Buttigieg just he baffles me sometimes because as much as, you know, he's a relatively I, I, I can't even say that he's not a, a, a relatively middle of the road candidate, but compared to you know, some of the other alternatives in the field, he is. Mm-hmm. And I think you see this kind of coalescence around some more middle ground candidates, basically Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar in that situation. Um, and Biden is just running a god awful campaign. I just he's just not a good candidate. When you look at the when you combine Klobuchar and uh, Buttigieg, that suggests there's a there's still a, a pretty significant moderate element to the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is not all liberal, right? I mean, there's going to this divide between the liberal and the centrist is going to play out mm-hmm. for quite a while. And, and I mean, Bernie won this one, but the you know combining uh, Buttigieg's and Klobuchar's numbers, there it's bigger than Bernie. So especially if you throw Biden into that mix, yeah, that's uh, right. Then you're at like close to sixty percent of of you know you're at 50, over fifty percent of voters at that point. So uh, let's let's talk about I, I, let's talk about the the kind of clump of of Warren and Klobuchar and and Buttigieg because there's some like competition amongst them right uh, and then let's come back around to to Bernie and Biden I, a couple of things on the you know what, what you're talking about Nick I think is is right on and there, there's an argument to be made in this that vague is better right that Pete mm-hmm. Buttigieg has been mm-hmm. relatively vague or you know relative to Elizabeth Warren at least vague on you know policy proposals big statements about general policy yes specific plans less so and mm-hmm. we should want a candidate who's very specific about their plans right so there's a there's a you know a perverse incentive here that that you know the thing that popped up that that's that stood out to me when um, Pete Buttigieg was here is uh, you've seen some of this in the media. He, he has uh, I, I, so this is the first time I've seen him in person. Um, but there was a, an Obama quality to his rhetoric, the way he talked, the kind of style of, of talk, even the kind of the rhythm of his, t- of, of his speaking. And, and I've seen people point out that that is, you know, intentional, um, but but there's a that's a, a play he's making right that 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 it's about the big idea it's about pulling together and when he first entered the race he was pretty damn progressive and he has kind of pulled back from a lot of that stuff so that flexibility and the vagueness uh, has has played well for him whereas Elizabeth Warren who goes you know I, again ideally we should have all you know she's very clear about what she thinks she's transparent about it here are her policies um, and and. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's not a, necessarily a good thing, but it's uh, I think it's it's, you know, if I were advising a candidate, that would be the way to go. You get trapped by right. your plans. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's the thing. And I, I don't know, even if Elizabeth Warren had just stayed at the rhetorical level and not been supposed to be so specific about plans, whether she would have moderated. I mean, she was very reluctant to do so. But she is outside of, you know, whatever separating her from her plans. Like she's a really engaging candidate. She's likable. She's dynamic. I mean, remember when people were waiting hours to get selfies? I mean, there's there was something that people liked about her. But then to your point, Nick, when they started debating the Medicare plan, that mm-hmm. was kind of it. And and she couldn't move past that. Yeah. Whereas a Buttigieg, you're absolutely right, Phil. He was very liberal to begin with and read the tea leaves and saw what was going on in Biden. And then he suddenly became a centrist candidate. 
And I'm guessing he'll stay there, uh, especially if, if Biden continues to falter. And, and that lets voters kind of paste on him whatever they want. So if you're more liberal, you can see him as this, you know, progressive. Uh, it's sort of like Obama. If you want to view Absolutely. him as a liberal, you can view him as a liberal. If you want to view him as a moderate, you can view him as a moderate. And so people can kind of, you know, create whatever they want. Um out of him. That, I don't mean that as a, as a critique of him necessarily. I mean, that could be that he's yeah, it could be a brilliant strategy for him. Mm-hmm. The other part about the, the war and stuff that I find fascinating is, is the role of the narrative and particularly the role that the media has played in that narrative. Because right now, like we are talking about Warren and the media is talking about Warren as if she's done and Klobuchar as if she's a front runner. But as we sit here today, Elizabeth Warren has more delegates than Amy Klobuchar, right? When you combine Iowa and New Hampshire together, Elizabeth Warren is in third in this race. She came in third in Iowa. Um, and people talked about it like it was a dev- devastating loss. Amy Klobuchar comes in third in New Hampshire, and people talk about it like it's this you know crowning victory. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really interesting you know it's an interesting dynamic, and it also shows how quickly fortunes can change. For I mean, if 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 things had gone slightly different, if 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 Warren had been on the way up instead of down, and Klobuchar like it's 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 all it's it's weird the extent to which we kind of paste stories onto stuff or narratives onto things that maybe are there but are you know just as likely not there, mm-hmm. and, and they can change right. So Biden has had a couple bad weeks, but when he, if he comes to South Carolina and he does great. Then the narrative is he's back again, right? And that becomes the story for the next week and a half. And I don't know if that'll, I mean, I think I, that's I, his last chance. I know. I, I'm, I he, think if he fucks up there, he's done. <laughs> the, the Biden camp is worried. Yeah. But well, I mean, I'm trying to think is, is Sanders or Buttigieg, they have 16 delegates. Right. And, and you need almost 2,000. Right. So we are so early in the process. There are going to be lots of ups and downs. There's so many states still that are left. And, so, you know, we can overreact to these early results, but but they do matter in terms of shaping that narrative. Buttigieg has to be excited. Klobuchar's got to be excited going into Nevada and South Carolina. Uh, but, you know, Biden isn't done yet. Uh, or I don't know. What do you, do you guys do you think Biden's done? I, I, so here's the the other element that hasn't really emerged yet in this process and is is about to. I think you have to put some sort of credence to the narrative that. Bloomberg is going to to influence this race significantly, yeah, especially so. come Super Tuesday, where he is pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into it's yeah. it's I it's you look at the field now and you think of the bickering and, and the the back and forth and, and infighting and the way that we're talking about how the narrative is being shaped. Once he enters that race, Biden, to me, seems to be even more uh, uh, distant of a prospect than he is now. And it, he, this is going to divide the field even farther. Um, I'm not sure where Bloomberg would necessarily come in, but I can easily see him being one of the top three contenders when it's all said and done. Which is, is surprising. We were talking before we started taping about that there are three African-American uh, members of Congress who came out in the last day or two and are supporting Bloomberg, mm-hmm. kind of confronting this, that Bloomberg is a racist narrative that was out over the weekend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, and Bloomberg, it potentially changes everything, especially if Biden continues to stumble and he is pouring money into ads. We were we were texting about the ad that he ran against Trump this weekend, which is a really, really good ad. Mm-hmm. And unlike a lot of the other Democrats, Bloomberg knows how to do social media. 
I mean, Trump is Trump's team is fantastic at social media. Bloomberg maybe he's not as good as Trump, but he is. Gay ice cream did not do anything. (laughs) No, but it's going to be close, right? I mean, he would. He's got enough money and a team to go out there, Mm -hmm. uh, which has to be exciting for some Democratic supporters. Yeah, I I mean, it's. I'm sorry, you're going to say something, Phil? No, you can finish your thought. No, um, I, I, I'm not necessarily sure he's he's great from a. Uh, a narrative perspective, uh, a, a a personal narrative, narrative oh, perspective, yeah. and his campaign would be run as effectively as some of the other ones. But when you have hundreds of millions oh. of dollars to pour into it, it doesn't necessarily matter. You can that overcome much. that. So, <laughs> I, yeah, it's I, I don't know. He spent uh, the the numbers are that you know he's up to fifteen percent or something in nationwide polls, but that has cost him thirty million dollars a point, a percentage point. That's so crazy. Here's, here's, here's the positive <laughs> and negative that I see of of, of Bloomberg. I, I think that so one of the things that came out of exit polls in New Hampshire is that people cared far more about beating Trump than about the issue. So mm-hmm. when they asked voters about what mattered most, that that the the candidate lined up on issues uh, that they supported or they thought they could beat Trump. It was something, it was two to one. It was, you know, 66% um, wanted someone who could beat Trump. Bloomberg, the ads he's running are are brilliant and he's attacking Trump, which is something that the other candidates aren't doing. So if you care about beating Trump, I could see Bloomberg doing really well. Here's the here's the negative of Bloomberg as I see it. I, I think there's an argument that Bloomberg is the new Biden in in this sense that when people don't know, when they haven't thought all that much about it, haven't researched the candidates, that they attach um, their ideas to the name that is most familiar to them. So Biden mm-hmm. had the name recognition thing coming in because he had been vice president. And what, what's become clear in Iowa and in New Hampshire is that push comes to shove and people really sort of dig into the candidates and think about it. They find one that fits their their preferences more um, because name recognition becomes less important as they start actually looking at candidates. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a real argument that that Bloomberg, you know, that, that 15% of people across the country who say, yeah, I like Bloomberg, they're just not thinking much about it, right? It's the, that's the name that's familiar. They've seen the ads. They like the ads. And that as it comes closer, that that could just as well evaporate. And that, that those are really undecided voters that you can, you can sort of parenthetically, a Bloomberg voter is an undecided voter. Mm-hmm. I, I assumed you were going to say when push comes to shove, the Democratic Party was going to shove Biden down a flight of stairs and <laughs> Bloomberg would become the nominee. But either way, whatever. <laughs> well, and, and we've seen this with all the candidates, right? So, you know, we, you fall in love with Warren and then they start digging. You become prominent. The media picks them apart. It's all of that. Although, you know, the, the two candidates, you're, this hasn't happened to Bloomberg yet. And you're right, Phil, that it will. I also kind of feel like it hasn't happened to Bernie yet where there hasn't been this spotlight on him, mm-hmm. uh, the way that it will happen, if he wins the Democratic primary, the Republicans are going to talk about how he did his honeymoon in, in the Soviet Union. I mean, that that spotlight is going to be intense. Mm-hmm. And I would prefer that conversation to begin in the Democratic primary. But for some reason, it hasn't happened. Um, it feels like every candidate that's bumped up, you know, Buttigieg, Biden, all of them have had that, uh, but not Bernie. And I'm, I'm always curious why he hasn't gotten that heat yet. Mm-hmm. I, he is, I, you, you know, you're, you're talking about kind of vague political stances and, and campaigns in general. He is the ultimate vague candidate, in my opinion. Uh, he has these, you know, massive programs that he wants to, to do and fund. And there's been no explanation how anything is going to get paid for necessarily besides you're going to increase taxes on the wealthy. That's yeah. about it. That's all we have. Well, and th- maybe that's a good transition into should we should we go to James Carville or what were you going to say, Phil? 
Uh, no, I mean, I, I think part of it is also that it's it's hard for a Democrat to run an attack ad accusing someone of being, you know, a, a socialist. That's a hard, hard yeah. line to run. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, it's easier for a, in a Democratic primary to run an ad accusing, you know, Bloomberg of being racist. Right. So there, there's the the sort of, you know, where, where you're coming from affects the sorts of critiques that can be made. But I think you're right. Those are those are things that that are better to get out and and and, you know, to to figure out approaches to and responses to now as opposed because because trump is going to you know uh, to hit the hell out of those those yeah. issues when it comes general election time yeah real quick before yeah. we do oh, the, sure. the carville thing I, we were we were making fun of uh, fun of it earlier but i don't know if it was yesterday or the day before when that hashtag bloomberg is a racist or bloomberg is racist thing came out on twitter did you guys look at the responses that were coming in on that no specifically no. from democrats it was Phil, I know, you know, in terms of of voters in New Hampshire and generally uh, people seem to be more concerned about beating Trump as opposed to differences in, in issues or stances between the uh, Democratic candidates. But it was looking at some of the responses and some of the, the tweets that were um, kind of going viral with it. There was an, an immense amount of division and conspiracy theory. And this is you know, Russian bots again, and it's the GOP. And, you know, so, the other side of it was, you know, he is a racist. And if the, the Democratic Party isn't going to take him down or the media isn't going to take him down, we have to do it ourselves. And this is coming from like yeah. journalists like Washington Post, New York Times, major, major public people from major publications. And it's just the vitriol that was going back and forth on this. It's I, I'm I'm not really convinced everybody is going to rally around the flag and pick one specific candidate that effectively enough to to defeat Trump. I, I, I think they will, Nick. And here's why. All of these primaries are just knife fights. I mean, think about the Republican primary in 2016 with Trump and all of them, Rubio and all. I mean, they were brutal. I mean, when you go back and listen to the audio of all those Republicans who were running for president attacking Trump, it was awful. Mm -hmm. And now Lindsey Graham and Rubio, they all love him, right? So I, I, everybody will come together because you know what? Oh, in hate terms of Trump's yeah. love. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> you know, so. yes. I love Trump's hate. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, I, I think within the party itself, yeah, I, I think that's almost a certainty at this point. In terms of Democratic voters, I'm not necessarily sure that's a certainty anymore. Mm. I think there are enough deep-seated convictions that people have now, depending on which candidate that they're behind, that that's not necessarily going to be the case. And I think Bernie fans might be the most interesting case study there. I'm not sure that they will, would get behind some of the other Democratic candidates. Right. We'll see. So, I, yeah. It, close to like there was a, a, a survey done recently that it's half of Bernie supporters uh, say either they will not vote for the Democratic nominee if it's someone other than Bernie or they're not sure if they will. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think the highest was like Tulsi, but, um, but yeah, Bernie like is, is different from the, uh, his supporters are different than the, uh, the other kind of mainstream, uh, candidates and that they're not, if, if Bernie's not the nominee, yeah. they're not necessarily on board. And that, that's bad news for the democratic party. If that's, mm -hmm. if that's the case. Yeah. Yep. 
So James Carville. Mm-hmm. So some of our younger listeners may not know James Carville, but he was a political aide and strategist for Bill Clinton. Raging Cajun. Oh, he, he's one of the more fascinating political figures of the, you know, of, of the last 25 years. And he's been doing a couple media hits lately. And he has come out and basically said the gravest threat to the country right now is Donald Trump. And what the Democrats need to do is defeat Donald Trump. And who's not going to do that is Bernie Sanders. And he says, basically, Democrats who are supporting him, they've drifted toward this ideological cult and he doesn't like cults. Um, and it was it was as if he was kind of grabbing that uh, Bill Clinton element of the Democratic Party to say, wake up. We need a more moderate, a more pragmatic. I mean, he was talking about African-Americans aren't going to be on board with Bernie, that the Democratic Party needs to to get rid of this extremist stuff and you run a centrist campaign to win the presidency. That's what you do. And it was, uh, you know, it was really startling, but also really compelling to hear that argument. I, I guess I'm curious about your guys. I, feel, I mean, what did you, you know, Phil, we've been texting about this, the Rage and Cajun, his argument. What, what do you make of it? Uh, so a couple of things. First of all, it's a little bit undermined by the fact that he thinks electability is the most important thing. And he threw his support behind Michael Bennett. <laughs> this is a great who, point. Who got, who got like 1%. <laughs> of the votes in in less than that in new hampshire so that that kind of undermines it a little bit but i think um i i'm sort of torn by this because i i i do agree with him to some extent i i am i am deeply concerned at the extent to which in the last week you see uh you know bernie supporters booing uh you know amy klobuchar or chanting you know wall street pete at at, at Buttigieg, if, if that all comes around in the end, then, then that's, that's fine. Um, but if not, I, I think there's something to what Carville is, is saying that, that it's a question about pragmatism. It's about, you know, um, you, you put winning above, you know, the values that, so yeah, Med- Medicare for all would be great, but in this, in a, in a situation as dire as we are in, you have to win first and foremost. Um, I think the, the the counter to that is, you know, people who support Bernie think that Bernie has the best path forward for winning, right? That he has, because he believes strongly in things, because he has a long history of that, that's, you know, why he generates support. The the problem with that is, so I, you know, I jotted some stuff down after the election last night. There there are some warning signs with Bernie. The, 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 um, you know, the, the media has kind of dubbed him the, you know, 538 basically thinks he's going to win the current model. I shouldn't say they think they win. He's the odds on favorite to win every primary other than South Carolina, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, I was still looking at in, in, from New Hampshire. He lost. So from four years ago, he lost half of his votes. Right. Uh, now, there's there were way more candidates this time. Right. And he still managed to win. But, you know, people who showed up last four years ago to vote for Bernie, he, he's not expanding his, his, his coalition, right. Or his mm-hmm. base. He's, he's losing some of it. Well, and the um, big question, not to interrupt, but the, yeah. the, it makes you wonder were those votes in 2016 for Bernie or were they anti Hillary Clinton votes? Mm-hmm. And, and we don't know, but there, there could be a, a, a segment of the democratic party that was just frustrated with her candidacy. Some other interesting things that I thought that, that could point. So I, I don't, this isn't to me, you know, Bernie has won or tied the first two primaries he's leading across the, like he, he could well go on and, and roll, but I, I don't, I think it's way too early to declare that. Um, Elizabeth Warren faded and everyone would have expected that as Elizabeth Warren declined, Bernie would pick up those votes. And all the evidence is that that's not the case. As Warren lost votes, they went to Klobuchar, they went to Pete. And so 
the question of if Bernie has hit his ceiling at 35% of the Democratic Party is a valid question, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, turnout was up. So we were up almost 20%. There were almost 20% more people voted in the Democratic primary this year than four years ago. And yet Bernie's numbers were down. So he's expanded, you know, more people are being are coming over to the Democratic Party, but they're not coming over to Bernie. They're coming over to other candidates. Um, the the biggest turnout boom was from moderates, right? People who are essentially who are independents or, you know, that that have left the Republican Party and they did not go to, to Bernie. Um Anyway, I, you know, there's a big question about what st- happens. So there's lots of stuff about when other people start dropping out, when Biden drops out, um, what's going to happen. And and I don't, you know, this could be that Bernie rolls or it could be that he's he I think what is dangerous is if he goes on to win the nomination by essentially sticking at that 35 percent throughout the Democratic primaries. Um, and then, yeah, the, I think Carville could could be right. Mm-hmm. But all of this, I think, also gets at a generational divide, right? Young people love Bernie and they're sick of the politics as usual. They don't want a Bill Clinton third way. Let's moderate and be nice and try to appease Republicans and win over moderates. They're they're basically, I'm, we're sick of this bullshit. We want to change the system. And you have old people who you know want, want a different approach. And somebody has to come along and be able to make an argument that is appealing to both of them, that yeah. we're going to make important changes that benefit young people, but we are going to do it in a way that is not, you know, that, that also brings along and makes, you know, the, the sort of older generation of Democrats, uh, comfortable. And I, I don't see anyone making that argument right now. Mm-hmm. Well, and the strategy that wins you the democratic primary doesn't necessarily win you the general election. Right. Uh, and that's a big thing. So, uh, Larry Diamond, who's this famous political scientist who uh, has studied, democracy and and how and the more recently he's been doing work on how you defeat a populist sort of demagogue uh candidate and his argument has been that it's pretty clear when you look at other cases around the world and how you do that is you run a centrist campaign a broad and inclusive campaign that's very pragmatic about solving like bread and butter issues and you know that strikes me as we were talking about bloomberg that's kind of what he's doing um, it's, it's what Biden wanted to do. We'll see whether he can do it. But I mean, if the goal is to defeat Trump, that's different than winning the democratic primary. And I'm just, I'm worried that the Democrats are going to screw this up. Yeah. There it's, is some, go ahead, Nick. I've talked, no, go ahead, Bill. Well, oh, there, there is, let me just kind of throw this in and then uh, Bill and I, you and I've talked some about, I mean, it is again, a, whether you go centrist and try to build a coalition, there, there's something, this is going to piss off a lot of people. There's something that's a little Trumpian about the Bernie approach, which is this sort of all in. And if you disagree with me, right. you're wrong. Screw you. We don't want you, you know, along for the ride. Um, and so it, it is this it, it's this, you know, this intersection for the Democratic Party about whether they want to essentially go in the, you know, the the sort of all in kind of Republican approach to politics. And there's an argument for, you know, after years of what what has happened to say, screw it, we're going to we're going to play hardball as well. Or whether you want to go with this more kind of you know coalition building uh, approach. And, and that's where I, I, I think it is way too early to just to say which of those approaches is going to win. I think it's way too early to say that Bernie has this locked up. Mm-hmm. It could go anywhere from here still. Yeah. No, I, I think it's I think it's the old adage. It's it's Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. And realistically, I think it's as much as you want to talk about this from an ideological perspective, I think you can talk about that from both ends of the political spectrum. The thing with the Republicans is they can, you know, coalesce around the idea that conservatism 
as we know it in the the modern conception of it is progressivism driving the speed limit and nobody wants that shit anymore so regardless we know that whoever is a republican is still going to be uh, better than a democrat in terms of when we're talking about the, the the democrats and bloomberg specifically you and i were talking before we started recording everything that he's talking about now is the exact polar opposite of what he was doing when he was mayor of New York. He's not a Democrat at all. He's another New York billionaire. Like, I, I, like I, I'm, I'm just shocked that more people aren't making yeah. that that comparison. Yeah. And I, I think that from a, a generational perspective, this is an important inflection point for the uh, Democratic Party. You have a generation that is completely disillusioned with the system and another generation that feels that there needs to be significant change, but doesn't want to rock the boat too much. But as that disillusioned generation comes into this field and you expect them to be more and more of the electorate, they don't want to change their viewpoint. Like, I understand why they would stick with Bernie and wouldn't want to go with anybody else. The same feeling that you have on the uh, Republican side, where we're not going to compromise uh, our beliefs, are the same is the same thing that's going on on the Democrat or uh, on the, uh, the Democratic side of the aisle. But you have nine different camps to choose from now. And if you want to be a, an inclusive party, but still be have it based around ideological differences, on top of the fact that you're going to eviscerate each other on social media with a younger generation in charge of that, you're going to have a real tough time, you know, rallying around a, a specific idea, less, you know, e- uh, even less so around a specific candidate. They, they have, it's, they're going to have a rough go. It's yeah. messy, right? Is it about ideas or is it about defeating Trump? Mm-hmm. Trump defeating the, the, the position of it's about defeating Trump is easier to pull people together. Right. If it's about ideas, it gets messy. Mm-hmm. But defeating yeah. Trump is an idea. That, somebody no, that's needs right. to make that yeah. argument as well about you know that part of what we're fighting for is the you know a system that 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 works. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other the other part of, about all of this is that you know the the promise of I, there, there's a danger here in that. Uh, you know, if if you go moderate and you ignore this young generation of people who are fired up and and pissed off, a bit, you know, rightfully so by their you know situation, um, you you risk alienating them to some extent. But the the promise of the Bernie approach is that the the voters that he's reaching out to are the you know are fired up. And what happened yesterday in New Hampshire is that they didn't show up. I mean that, that's mm-hmm. it's you know the people who showed up it's it was the same old story. The old people showed up and and the turnout was actually down amongst voters under 30. So it's it's you know if they're going to be fired up and pissed off about stuff then they've they've got to they've got to show up and vote. Yeah. Should should we should we talk a little? I know that we need to move on, but should we talk a little bit about the next step, like what happens sure. next? Yeah. Because I, I, there's a fascinating thing which happens here, which is that Pete and Klobuchar have sort of emerged as these, you know, they're they are kind of fighting against by uh, against Bernie. But we're going to Nevada and South Carolina. Both Klobuchar and um, uh, and um, Buttigieg. Uh, are polling at almost nothing in both of those places. Klobuchar is at like 2% in both states. I think Buttigieg is up to five or six or something in some places. But they they were all in early, right? They they bet hard on Iowa and New Hampshire, hoping to get a, 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 a boom moving in. Now, the candidates who did badly, Biden and Warren, have this long-standing approach, right? They have a, an extensive ground game. They have money. 
So, so there's a situation in which had it been reversed, had Biden and Warren done well and Klobuchar and Pete done poorly, you would have had a lot of people clear out, right? And we would have had a three person race at Mm -hmm. this point, Mm -hmm. but the way it fell means that we've got, we've still got six, seven candidates moving forward. And we haven't gotten to the States where Tom Steyer, I mean, Tom Steyer spent a lot of money in New Hampshire to know uh, avail, but in New, in South Carolina, he's doing relatively well. And we haven't even gotten to the, the, the Bloomberg States. And so we, it, it really is still a, I think a seven, you know, it's like a six, seven candidate race moving mm-hmm. forward, which is really unusual. And I, and I think that's what makes it unpredictable. Like what happens next is Biden out? Is he not? Can Warren come back? Can, can Buttigieg and Klobuchar turn this momentum into something bigger in places where the population is not 90% white? I, I don't, I feel like people are talking about this like it's kind of settled. And I think we right. know it's almost nothing, nothing about what's going to happen in this race. That's a fair point. And, and the longer that all these candidates stick around, the way it gets a little in the weeds, but the way the Democrats do their primary, you know, it's, it's basically proportional. So it means that if this, if the more candidates stick around for a longer period of time, it does give an advantage to Bernie, who's likely to do well in a lot of these, maybe not win them and maybe not even win a majority of them. But if he does that, if he gets us 35%, across a bunch of these states, at the end of the day, he may have enough if, if more don't drop out. So, yeah, no, all of that is really fascinating moving forward. You think Andrew Yang would be on the podcast now that he's out? He's got I'd time. I'd love to have him on. Oh, yeah, that would be a fun conversation. He would conversation. just be fun to hang out oh, with, I feel he, like. He, he I don't want to really be like president, but I, he'd have I would a beer. Like, yeah. Yeah. All right. Speaking of which, we should talk about beers. probably do that. Phil, tell us about your cloudy, <laughs> yummy beer. <laughs> so uh the beer that i have is from single cut um what do they call it beer smiths they don't call themselves a brewery they call themselves beer smiths so single cuts in new york this is their softly spoken magic spells which uh is a interesting <laughs> name, name for a beer and i love their can it's like uh like pop yeah. art on the front mm. um so this beer gets fantastic reviews beer advocate gives it like a 98 world-class rating um it's really i mean when i poured this thing it is cloudy as hell like i mean there's chunks of stuff floating in it it's clearly not a <laughs> not a not not a whole lot of filtering going on um it's really good it's real it's very citrusy it's got that sort of tart um tartness but it's not like it doesn't it doesn't i don't know it's not overpowering um it it I, again, I don't know the beer terminology, but like the the feeling of like a dry wine, you know, versus it, mm-hmm. it's got that kind of dry feel to it. Um, it's 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 really nice, really enjoyable. I would certainly drink more of them. Our ability to describe complex beers is is really skyrocketing, Nick. Well, we're gonna yeah. break that down right now. All right, all right. So so <laughs> once again, this week we are having more Treehouse. Thank you, Nick and Alethea. Uh, amazing beers. We had a Pop Art and a Raven. Mm-hmm. Uh, pop art was an imp- wait it was a that was the, the imperial uh, stout. stout right and then the the raven was a black ipa mm-hmm. oh so nick what did you what did you think of these yeah so uh the pop art was a robust porter oh that's right robust porter. yeah yeah um you know I, I was joking but i had i have a really hard time describing mm-hmm. this beer so there's really, really pronounced maltiness to it. There's uh, a fair amount of bitterness to it, especially at the end. And then there was a, an aroma that I couldn't put my finger on, but it almost had like a, a dreamsicle yes. kind of like smell sugary, to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which, uh, again, I'm assuming it's the malt and the weird Japanese honey that they put in it or whatever the hell it was. Um, it was good. Yeah. Like, I just I don't have a good way to describe it. It wasn't overpowering. It wasn't overly bitter. All the all the things that I said about it, they were well 
balance, yeah. but everything was distinct at certain times as you were drinking it. Well, things, a, yeah, kind of came forward and then and then went back over time. And that's one of the things Tom said last week about treehouses that every beer is different. Like everybody can make an IPA, but if you to make it slightly different is impressive. Mm-hmm. And that was yeah, a, a porter that was was very different. Yes, the black IPA. Oh my goodness, the Raven! Surprisingly good. I really like that. Yeah, um, I can't read shit on the actual can because it just looked like like it's solid black. Yeah, I had to pull my um, my phone out and put my <laughs> flashlight on, like I'm one of these two at a restaurant <laughs> when it's you know there's one light off. Um, that was that was. Oh, I just I really thought that was a different IPA. It felt like an IPA, but as you're visually looking at it, it was different. It was a, maybe a little sweeter. Yeah. 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 It was. I, it was good. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I th- we've had a ton of IPAs on this podcast and um, a lot of really good IPAs. This was this was this was good. It yeah. was definitely good. Um, it didn't blow me away. Um, but yeah, like you know, you expect something called a black IPA. You would expect to be yeah. very very pronounced, and it was it was pretty smooth. It had a, a, a yes. nice head to it. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I liked it. We were talking, so last week we had three Treehouse beers that were all ranked in the top 100. And Raven was ranked like 9,800. But I think I think that is a, I think it should be ranked higher, Nick. Oh, yeah. Like overall, Treehouse yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, that was, so, that was a good one. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, if you guys want to check out all of our reviews that uh, we've done on the podcast, uh, follow us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, just search for Barstool Politics on there, and you will find all of that. Time for some speed round, Nick. Shout. All right, Nick, the purge has begun. Yay, that's my favorite. <laughs> it started oh, on man, Thursday. I am going to go with the Republicans because they have all the guns. <laughs> so it started on Thursday, less than 24 hours after his acquittal at the National Prayer Breakfast. Trump targeted both Nancy Pelosi and Mitt Romney, stating, quote, I don't like people who use their faith as a justification for doing what they know is wrong. And then he added, nor do I like people who say, I pray for you when you know they don't pray for you. I agree. (laughs) Later in the day, he spoke for over an hour and unleashed his fury on a wide range of uh, perceived enemies from congressional Democrats, James Comey, Mitt Romney, and many, many others, calling him, quote, the crookedest, most dishonest, dirtiest people I've ever seen. It's fucking Yosemite Sam. <laughs> I know. On Friday, <laughs> Trump fired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vidman, a member of Trump's National Security Council and ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. Both had offered testimony about Trump's interaction with Ukraine. He also fired Vidman's brother. Poor brother. He didn't Don't want to get him confused. Don't want him doing the... <laughs> right. Why is he still here? Wait, right. what? <laughs> So Trump has spent the last couple of days lashing out on Twitter and his rallies. Then on Tuesday, Trump said the military should look at disciplinary action against Vindman. It's clear that following his acquittal, Trump is unleashed and is looking for vengeance. Uh, Phil, this has all been really something to see. And it it stands in stark contrast to how Bill Clinton responded after his acquittal. So what was your reaction to all of this drama that's played out? Yeah, so uh, for reference, Bill Clinton, after he was acquitted, went on national TV and gave an address, and it was a little over a minute and a half long. Donald Trump's was like it was an hour over and it was over an hour and it was like straight out of the Festivus playbook. It was just like the airing of grievances. It was, it was and and frankly, it a lot was, of problems. With these people. It's uh, I mean, this is where we've developed this ability to kind of laugh at things that are actually for me a little bit frightening. Um, uh, I mean, so the the prayer breakfast, right? The prayer breakfast is an example that the, his comments. So if you go back to that what trump did that somebody had 
basically just, I think, said a prayer, but but referenced uh, something about loving your enemies, right? And Trump gets up at the National Prayer Breakfast and basically says, "You're, I think you're wrong, right? Loving your enemies is for suckers. <laughs> <laughs> eye for an eye. Fuck those people. Um, so, I, that, I mean, the... the this is I, I this is not surprising, right? After he's acquitted, after the republic, you know, Republicans in the Senate basically say, yeah, no, you know, bad, but not not impeachable. Um, it's not all that surprising that Trump is 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 out for you know retribution. This is kind of his his style, but the way it's played out has been deeply concerning. I, you know, firing Vindman should be like a red flag. But the president gets to choose who works for him. I mean, that, that's that's something that's, uh, you know, maybe should raise eyebrows, but is allowed. But when you start encouraging essentially their prosecution, right, when you're calling for, for them to be essentially, you know, criminalized, that's really dangerous territory. We, we've crossed over at that point into, you know, we're going to talk in a, in a few minutes about the sort of weaponizing of the Department of Justice. But yeah, I mean, I, the, the, that speech, you know, Bill and you and I were texting during it, the, the hour long speech after his acquittal was was it was kind of deranged. It was <laughs> it was really disturbing. I mean, when you're describing the Speaker of the House as evil, um, he's you know, he said she was an evil she and Adam Schiff, he described as evil, horrible people. We've become used to that in the era of Trump. But again, prior to this, the idea of the president describing the Speaker of the House as evil is like, uh, it's like incomprehensible. Could you I see mean, Jimmy Carter saying that or George no. W. Bush? Right? I mean, even the most, I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> Think of like the most vindictive, like you can't even imagine Richard Nixon doing that, yeah. right? Richard Nixon going out and describing the, you know, the Speaker of the House as, as, as evil it was, it's just not something you did, right? You disagree on policy. I, I don't like them. I want to defeat them, but that's different from categorizing them as, you know, inherently flawed, that they are evil people, that they are out for the destruction. That's, that's when you cross over this line in, in which we're not talking about disagreements about policy where uh, that it, it's, it's really, really disturbing to me. I, 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 I realistically, I, I agree with everything that you said in, in terms of the, the rhetoric that he did. I, I mean, I don't necessarily blame him for feeling that way. And he is who he is um, in terms of kind of the unprecedented, un unprecedented nature of it. I think it's unprecedented that it's as public as it is. I, I don't think that it's unprecedented in terms of the annals of, uh, you know, political vengeance, especially if you're going to talk about Nixon, he might not have done it in public, but we've all heard the tapes and some of those tapes are horrendous. Yeah, yeah infinitely worse than anything Trump has said. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it's when you're talking about having to go through an investigation and, you know, you clearly are, are not in agreement with the way that it was handled. Yes, that's that is your prerogative to to feel that way. Yeah. When you're talking about retribution or retaliation for people that, you know, are still government employees and and you know, you should have respect for their job and, and whatever, regardless of whether you agree with them or not, that's, that's something different altogether. And realistically, I, 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 again, I guarantee that all of them behind the scenes, this would in any other administration, these people would probably be gone anyways. But the fact that it's so overt in this administration, yeah. to me, it's par for the course. I'm not okay with it, but it's just there. They don't, 
play by the normal rules. Which is that's why I think the contrast to Clinton is interesting. I'm guessing behind the scenes, Clinton may have felt similarly. Like he felt like this was a right wing conspiracy against him. Mm-hmm. But he comes out and in his a minute, you know, minute and a half speech, he comes out and apologizes and says, I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry for my actions. I'm sorry I did this to the American public. Trump's only apology was, I'm sorry my family went through this because of the terrible witch hunt and all these. I mean, it was such a, you know, Go such girl. a contrast. <laughs> the other thing, and I know we got to wrap up here, is, you know, poor Gordon Sondland, who that, guy that gave, shocked me. He gave a million bucks yeah. to the Trump campaign yeah. and he is, you he know, really didn't do anything out of his ass. Of, yeah, right. Yeah. Sondland testified so he didn't go to jail, right? I mean, right. that was the thing. He was brought on there and he knew if he lied, he would go to jail. He's right. smart enough to know that. And now he's like, you know, does he get his million dollars back? No. I don't think it's refundable, no. <laughs> no. no. For somebody who is so big on loyalty, Trump has like <laughs> zero. Yes. Yeah. And I, my guess is this is only going to get worse. Yeah. There's going to be more people, more low level. We've talked a lot about his worry about the deep state. I think this administration is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. It's going to be Mick Mulvaney and a handful of other people around him uh, because of this. I mean, he's he's basically freed now to do what he wants. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's going to be fun speaking for you of, guys. Speaking of which. <laughs> yes. All right. Let's turn to our next topic. All right. Well, boys, it appears that the Justice Department has gotten itself into quite a pickle, Nick. Um, And Roger Stone, friend and advisor of President Trump, is at the center of it. The controversy began Monday when career prosecutors handling the case recommended that a judge sentenced Stone, convicted in November of obstructing Congress and witness tampering, he actually threatened a guy's dog. Um, he threatened to kill the guy's dog. You know what, man? Do whatever you want. Don't fucking hurt a dog. Right, really right. So, so the, the federal uh, prosecutors uh, uh, suggested between seven and nine years in federal prison. Hearing the news, Trump took to Twitter and noted, quote, this is horrible and very a very unfair situation. The real crimes were on the other side as nothing happens to them. Cannot allow this miscarriage of justice, unquote. Hours later... Probably unrelated, senior Justice Department officials intervened and recommended that a more a more lenient sentence, which prompted the four federal prosecutors handling the case to resign from their from this case. This is an extraordinary decision to overrule career lawyers and raises the question of whether the Justice Department is bending to White House pressure. Phil, it's hard to be shocked anymore, but this really, really troubled me. It's hard to interpret this as any other way than the president is putting his thumb on the scale of justice, and his attorney general, Bill Barr, is absolutely okay with that. Um, What was your reaction of all of this? Y'all remember uh, when Bill Clinton had a conversation on on an airplane with the attorney general and the entire lynch? Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah, we've come a long way. This <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I mean, so you know that that this you said that this you know raises concerns about whether uh, the Justice Department is bending to White House pressure. It, it's out in the open, right? I mean, they're doing this in the open. Like tr- Trump tweeted today his praise of Bill Barr for doing this. He's talking openly about how what the Justice Department should do, and then he's thanking them when they do it. Um, it it's. It, this is not it is it's happening. It's, again, an example we've talked about before that if you do something shamelessly, people are aren't really sure how to respond to it. And, and that that's kind of what's happening here. Um, this is it really is unprecedented. I mean, we the, the country has a, a you know. It, it does not by no means do we have a perfect record of of certainly not of law enforcement in general, but of a buffer between the executive and law enforcement. But 
the principle has been there. And for the most part, there has been a separation between the, the, the um, presidency and the attorney general because you don't want justice to be politicized. And it's just being shredded here. I mean, it's also the same story of uh, that came out this week that Rudy Giuliani is now going to just be referring this, the stuff he yeah. digs up in Ukraine straight to the, to the department of justice. So got direct access. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the, the thing you were talking about a minute ago, Bill, on the last topic, which is that he's in, he's emboldened. It's going to be, he's just going to, you know, he's got his sort of inside crew and he's just going to be doing it. I, I think of all the stuff that has happened, that this, the idea of the Justice Department in some way sort of answering to the president, in terms of all the scandals of the Trump presidency, this one goes pretty high for me I, it, it, because it gets at sort of the underlying principles of, of an independent judiciary. And, and that it really it, it really does bother me. And, and it's not making as much news as it as it, I think it should. Because we've been living in prison for three years now. That right. Sounds right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I mean, yes, I, I'm I'm mildly disturbed about this as well. Uh, I, I guess my my thing about all of this is, and realistically, I I'm I'm gleeful in a lot of ways when there's these kinds of shredding of of institutional norms. I know to to your chagrin. I love norms. I, I know you both do. Good norms. But the thing is like, this is, this should be again, an opportunity for Congress and other elements of the government to plug these holes. Like realistically, if you, you want to talk about buffers between the executive and the judicial or the, uh, the judiciary, then put some sort of actual buffer there and don't expect people to just behave the way that they should behave. As much as I think that it quote unquote has worked the way that it should, um, historically i don't necessarily believe that it has and you should probably put something there in writing yeah. to stop that from happening but there's still no movement i mean there's not even an inkling that there's some sort of of push to um curtail the power of the executive branch or or, or any of these things that we've been talking about which is it it, it, it uh, again it just shocks me that that no one has pushed this more and and democrats have spoken out against it but that falls in the partisan you know banter sort of stuff sure no republicans have said this goes too far and i think that's that's the only constraint on trump right now is republicans and nobody said anything there's a you know a couple things that really bother me about this and phil you you hit a lot of them but that he did this in the open mm -hmm. you know it, it used to be that you 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 know I, when this happened yesterday i thought no they, they couldn't have done this and the other thing is a lot of conversation has been about, was there any direct communication between Trump and Barr? Mm -hmm. And obviously there was the tweet and that sends a signal. And I think that matters. But then the, today they said, oh, the, you know, there was no conversation. Trump didn't reach out. No pressure. Barr said that. Trump said that. But Barr doesn't need that. I mean, that's the thing about, Je about Bill Barr. He knows what he needs to do. Jeff Sessions, we trashed Jeff Sessions for a long period of time. He wouldn't have done this. No. And and that says something. Bill Barr is a different type of attorney general who knows what Trump wants. And when this signal comes down, I mean, the fact that four federal prosecutors instantly remove themselves from the case is a sign. Like these are not partisan individuals. And I know Trump will frame them as Mueller investigators and all of that. But it is it's really, really concerning what's playing out here. I think the fact that all four step down is a sign that something really significant. It's not that. You know that uh, I I don't know I I think something pretty fishy happened for that to occur. It's not yeah. that they had done this, and some anyway. I and and here's the thing that Trump's em emboldened approach will 
it, it could backfire. I'm not particularly counting on that. But in this situation, the judge in this case can basically ask those four, those four justices, those four uh, attorneys, you know, what the hell happened? Um, yeah. And it can just it can come out pretty easily. Uh, so th- th- there will be tests of Trump's new approach, which is that I can get away with essentially whatever I want. Um, and, and, you know, who knows how that will play out. But couldn't he have just pardoned? Well, th- th- this is the point. Couldn't Nick, he have right? just let the process play out? Why? Why kill democracy? Right? Yeah. You have you can pardon them. I think this is the thing that struck me today. Is like <laughs> just pardon him. Bill just about jumped out of it <laughs> because you know that would have been the easy way to say right. I feel like this was a miscarriage of justice. I'm going to use my institutional power to just say. I think this is wrong. You're pardoned. Right. Don't go this this next level of attacking the prosecutors. Today, he, you mentioned the judge. He also went after the judge. Right. I mean, you're burning down the democratic institutions for a friend and a buddy. And I just, oh. I, I think that goes to the larger question. We've talked a lot over the past three years about whether Trump is strategic or, or not. And I think this is the sort of thing in which I... I, I think what he does is effective, but I don't think he's necessarily a strategic thinker. He's he's mm-hmm. you know, he he feels attacked and, and that like the world is out to get him. And he he you know, that that's if he were strategic, he would say this will all play out in a couple of weeks. I'll pardon him. It'll be or after the election. I will pardon him and it will be fine. Um, and yeah, I, I anyway, God, we yeah. would be so much better at this. Yeah, we, we, could, would, we could be, we, we could be, be good. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the, before you go on, that's the concern, yeah. right? That people have brought up is that the, all this stuff that Trump is doing, uh, that Trump is not particularly great at it. And, and the real danger is what happens the next time somebody comes along who is good at it. Yeah. <laughs> if, if Trump were actually strategic about what he's doing, it would, it could be really devastating in a way that we haven't seen at all. But I think we've seen like, I, I, yeah, this is probably unprecedented. I think, Again, that a lot of the a lot of what we see overtly in this administration was being done covertly mm-hmm. in previous mm-hmm. administrations. I, but I like that better, ma- Nick. Pretending matters. Pretending matters. Pretending yes, does matter. Yes. yes. Well, that mm-hmm. could be the title. <laughs> all right. Moving on. Nick, do you know what people tell me all the time about the podcast? Uh, that you're a communist. I'm, a, I'm apparently a Nazi. Sometimes. Yeah. But the other thing is that we don't talk about architecture enough. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. That was third on the list. So so here we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to a draft of an executive order obtained by Architectural Record, it's a journal, apparently, a magazine, the Trump administration has an aggressive plan to, and I quote, quote, make federal buildings beautiful again. Love it. The plan is to mandate a return to the classical architecture style. Under the order, the White House would require a rewriting of the guiding principles for federal architecture issued in 1962 to, quote, ensure that the classical architectural style shall be preferred to the default style for new and upgraded federal buildings. Classical style draws on inspiration from Greek and Roman architecture. Think about the White House. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any project seeking exemption from the mandate would have to get approval from, and I love this, a presidential rebeautification committee. Can I be on that committee? Yes. I'd actually like to be on that one. <laughs> the order spearheaded by the National Civic Art Society, a nonprofit group that believes contemporary architecture has, quote, created a built environment that is degrading and dehumanizing. <laughs> the group's chairman, Marion Smith, uh, stated recently, quote, for too long, architectural elites and bureaucrats have derided the idea of beauty, blatantly ignored public opinion on style. This executive order gives the voice to the 99%, the ordinary American people who do not like what our government has been building. 
That's a heck of a statement. Because <laughs> the, the average American really gives a shit what That's DC right. looks like. So, Phil, you hate dehumanizing architecture. Yeah. So what's what's your take on this development? I, I, <laughs> I don't really know what to make of all of this. I, on one hand, the idea of having you know, like a unified approach to, you know, I work on college campuses, right? The idea of, of having like a, you know, a, a, a coherent architectural approach makes a lot of sense. Um, on the other hand, there's a long history of essentially government being, which I know, I know conservatives hate, being a, a, a major advocate of the arts. So, you know, the, of, you know, the, the money that is available for federal architecture, you know, is used to build new and interesting things and it helps in, encourage, you know, creativity. And, and I tend to like that. I, I sort of like modern architecture. The part that about the, all of this that's really interesting to me is the extent to which this seems uh, to be a well, it, it seems to point to a type, the type of conservatism that is popular today, right? This is not a libertarian conservatism, right? This is not conservatives that basically say, we're going to let the market decide things. We're going to take, uh, you know, all sorts of proposals and whatever is the, the best or the most efficient we're going to go with. This is a government that is, you know, imposing a, a sort of a top down approach. This is what it will look like, which, you know, fits more in the sort of uh, the, the, the good old days are the better way of doing thing approach of conservatism. So um, it, it goes much more in line of the, you know, the, the nostalgia for the, the days of old, um, which is an interesting development. I mean, I think that's been a, a, a tug of war within the conservative party for a long time, but the notion of like small government and markets, this is not it. Mm -hmm. No, it almost sounds like it was coming from elites and bureaucrats, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's just me. Having lived in D.C., I, I would be all completely on board on, on this. Uh, um, I, I find it interesting considering what architecture looked like in terms of government buildings in the early 60s, which was pretty much concrete blocks. That was that a looked bad like the decade. Soviet Union. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, in, in theory, I would be OK with this. But, yeah, it's it is a very not even handed. What, what's what's the word? Um totalitarian yeah mildly totalitarian <laughs> um yeah just just this overreaching bullshit where this is just a fight that again that you didn't need to necessarily pick um yeah like i, I just i don't know like i i and realistically i am i'm a person who does think that the government should be a a sponsor and advocate for the arts and and architecture and and any and any of that but um at the same time, this is using the levers of government from a very bureaucratic perspective that doesn't necessarily fall in line with what I think a lot of conservatives see as, as you know, should be the, the, the core tenets of, of conservatism. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, picking that fight with the perceived elitists that are generally uh perceived as 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 democrats and 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 Dance bureaucrats and yeah deep state yeah. or people within the deep state it it's i don't know this is fucking dumb why are we talking no this is good this? nick i'll tell you why uh so there are federal buildings all across the country and oftentimes states so when you travel you know there are federal buildings in each state and and the states had a voice in that and the architecture when you look at some of the federal buildings that have been built across the country they're gorgeous now you're right the 60s sucks 
sucked. But there are a lot of really interesting architectural buildings that reflect the local space. True. And to me, this feels like this is states' rights. Like you should be thinking about, you know, federal and state. If you're building a, a building in New Mexico, that should look different than if you're building one in Massachusetts. And and the idea that we're all going to look like the White House. Now, I, when I go to D.C., I like that kind of architecture. But it's it's I don't know if every space should look like that. But you would know where everything is. Well, this you is have true. Greek temples like in every city, you know what it is. But, but why this <laughs> classical style? And the other thing that troubles me about this is the other through history, the regimes that do this are these totalitarian, you know, Mussolini, he had a very specific oh, style. stop it. <laughs> so, You're just being ridiculous. No, I know, I'm, I'm a bit provocative, but I also okay. think that, you know, you, you, I don't want my government telling me what all buildings should look like, right? I mean, this should be a more organic process, and so... No, have it all look like the Roman Empire. I'm good, I'm good with it. <laughs> I'm gonna, that's what, I'm gonna build my house. It's gonna look like a Roman temple. Thanks for entertaining that topic. <laughs> that was a good one. So, all right, finally, our fun one today. So on Monday night, Donald Trump treated, tweeted out a clip from a premiere of the current season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Nick, we've been waiting for the entire podcast for a moment like this. <laughs> Trump tweeted a clip where Larry David is driving somewhere and it cuts off some a biker on a motorcycle. The guy on the motorcycle starts cussing and threatening Larry. They uh, they uh, stop alongside each other and the, at the next red light, and it looks like the guy on the hog is going to kick Larry's ass. Larry reaches down and pulls out his mega hat, and the guy immediately calms down, telling Larry, just to drive a little bit more carefully next time. Apparently, Trump loved the clip and tweeted out along with the message, tough guys for Trump. What Trump may or may not have known is that in the episode, Larry David (laughs) realizes that if he wears a mega hat, um, make America great hat in LA, people will not want nothing to do with him and leave him alone. Pretty much Larry David's dream. The question is whether (laughs) Trump got the joke or just like the idea of a tough guy on a motorcycle uh, enjoying a mega hat. Nick, you're our comedy expert. What's your read of all of this? (laughs) This is a brilliant episode. (laughs) Realistically, he goes into, I I don't know, it has to be four or five different places in LA. He goes to uh, like a restaurant or something and he's sitting at the counter and he doesn't want anyone to sit next to him. So he puts the hat on. Sushi joint or something. Yeah, and they immediately leave. But they're, they're, there is, you know, there, there's something to that where I think people who who are Trump supporters who see that kind of, you know, connect with each other. But no, in, in the end result, the end result of this is Larry David does not support Trump in any way. He I think he even says in the show he, he's very uh, der- derisive in terms of, of, of Trump and, and his policies. But he just doesn't want to talk to people. He doesn't want to deal with anybody, which I completely sympathize with. So I thought this was hilarious. Um, no, I don't think. Well. Trump probably didn't get the joke, but regardless, this is, I think, another aspect of taking a component of something and, you know, bending it to your will, which I think his campaign is great at and his supporters are exceptionally good at. He has by far the the best uh, social media apparatus, uh, unofficial social media apparatus of anyone um, in, in terms of politics. And it's uh it's it's just kind of the world that we live in now um it's extremely effective uh and i'm sure it it, it got a lot of traction and i think a lot of people thought sides. it was it was funny because you know just of that component they didn't watch the entire episode um yeah it's 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 a weird place to be where you can take something like that you know it's a half hour show just watch the fucking show uh, but you take that component and it has a completely different meaning from its intended purpose. Mm-hmm. And it takes 20 seconds to completely turn that around. Yeah. 
Phil, what was your what your reaction? Well, this? I mean, my my immediate reaction was I, I can't believe the president of the U.S. just tweeted out a clip that drops eight, <laughs> I think eight f bombs in this like that very also. short period of time. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's another example of like imagine if if you know Barack Obama or George W. Bush or John F. Kennedy like had died. like it's just again pretending matters. I, I'm not I'm not trying to imagine that other presidents never use language like that, but they certainly didn't do it in the public. Um, the other part, I think, is what you've kind of talked about a little bit, um, is that uh, this is also evidence to some extent of which we're no longer speaking the same language, right? It felt mm-hmm. like in the in the past, you know, Republicans and Democrats had, uh, you know, they were arguing about issues, but they were speaking this, they disagreed, but they spoke the same language. And this is like where we're living in two separate worlds in which I think, you know, liberals are like, doesn't he get it that this is, this is, you know, that this is not, this is making fun of him. And I think, uh, Republicans see it and think that, yeah, people are scared of people who wear MAGA hats. Like, yeah, that's that's the whole point, right? That's awesome. I don't care if you think that's funny. That's the way I want it to be. And so it can be one of those where it can mean totally different things to to different to different segments of society. And I, I don't know that, that's that's not good. But uh, yeah, <laughs> right. no, that, that's my read of it as well. Like that. Yeah. Trump didn't get the joke at all, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. This will play right. well. I mean, the liberals are tweeting this around and loving all of this, but I'm sure this is playing well in the conservative yeah. circles as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, again, we're speaking different languages and it and everybody wins by losing. <laughs> so, okay. Everybody, everybody was... loses by winning. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it's I. I it's I, I don't know like like I watched that and I I just howled like because it, it, it was so funny to me and like I, I I don't necessarily think that conservatives think they want people to be scared if they're wearing a MAGA hat they go you're ridiculous for thinking that we're any sort of threat to you to begin with especially in a place like LA mm-hmm. where it would be the epicenter of that kind of thing uh, which I think is is uh, funnier to them than you know, having a, a moment where you, you see somebody else who's wearing a MAGA hat or something and you connect with them. Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're, you, you nailed it, Phil, that we just don't speak the same language anymore. And I'm not sure what brings us back to a center point. Group um, hugs. Group, group hugs. Yeah. hugs. <laughs> Trump does love the tough guy, right? And he loves the idea that his supporters are tough. And, you know, it's an interesting thing from a guy who didn't serve in the military, who bold spurs no turned him off. Him. Right. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing about him that's that physical in any way, but he loves these. And it's interesting that that tough guys, bikers, you know, blue people, it's a curious relationship that those two get along so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fall in line. Hey, that's right. <laughs> We're very good at it. I'm not even going to stop. We're just going to stop it right yeah. there. It's only a few seconds longer. Um, stop for two seconds. That was it, right? Yeah, we're um, good. Um, yeah. Uh, hold, 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 please. You could um, get the get the music going, Nick. This is, this is good. This is good. Most yeah. really yeah. good podcasts have moments like this. <laughs> uh, if you guys like oh, this. Nice. Uh, um, like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions. Follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul. Uh, P-O-L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, Beers that we try, you can find it untapped on iOS or Android. Um, just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Um, review us, share us, like us through there. We appreciate the support. Uh, and then our merch line, you can find on teespring.com. Look for the direct link on our social channels. Uh, mugs, hoodies, t-shirts, more things coming. We're going to have to make something with the 
uh, pretending is important. What was it? Pretending is pretending matters, matters. right? Pretending yeah. matters. We're gonna need a unicorn. That's and good. Somebody that's a good. Yeah, I'd, like, I'd buy that T-shirt. Beat into a pulp in the background or something. Um, anyways, uh, anything else, guys? I'm, I'm distracted by the music. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be watching this week. <laughs> See you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>